Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 21. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. Welcome all. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Today is another listener-requested episode. We're going to talk about surviving bad positions. So this can mean a variety of things, but generally in jiu-jitsu, when you're in a bad position, this means you, you've given up side control, neon belly, mounts, back mounts. Basically, you are on the defensive. There's really no other way around it. Your offensive options are pretty limited here. How do you survive? It could mean a lot of things too. You might be locked in a submission and you're debating in your mind whether it's time to tap or not. Or if you're newer to jiu-jitsu, maybe you're not sure when that time is. So hopefully mm-hmm. we can discuss some of the mechanical aspects of submissions and uh, talk about survival. Sounds good to me. So I think a good place to start if we want to talk about bad positions is to talk about why bad positions are bad. <laughs> you know, it's, we, we all know what positions are considered bad, but do we really know what it is about them that makes them bad? Now, this is a callback to what we talked about in earlier episodes where we spoke about alignment. Really, when you're in a bad position, what this means is that your opponent has come up with a way to reduce the effectiveness of your alignment. Um, to, to visualize it, think about when you're on the bottom and your opponent is in your closed guard. Now think about you're on the bottom and your opponent is mounted on you. Really, the position does not look that different. Really, the only difference is that when you have the opponent in your guard, you are able to engage your legs. When they're mounted on you, they're now cutting your body in half, which breaks your structure, right? You you can no longer use your arms and your legs as effectively because your opponent's body is between them. So normally what a bad position means is it's not about how many points you've given up. It's, um, you know, it, what it means is that your opponent is doing things to actively impede your alignment. Um, this can mean that they're impacting your posture, meaning uh, that your your spine is, is uh, compromised. Normally, what this means is that, you know, your, your head is being forced to turn in an angle where you can no longer effectively use the power of your spine and your core. It could mean that your structure is compromised, meaning that your your arms or your legs are exposed in such a way that they are a liability to you, either because your opponent can use them as a lever or they're applying a submission. It could also mean that your base is compromised, meaning that you're not able to generate or absorb force in a meaningful way. So, um, you know, a good example of this, of course, is if you've got someone mounted on you, your ability to move around now and play the game that you want to play is really compromised because you You have to support your opponent's weight and they're sitting on top of you in such a way that the mobility of your arms and legs is reduced, which means that you don't have the options that you normally would. So that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so that's all that a bad position really is. Uh, It's also possible to be in survival mode when you're in a a less dominant position. You know, you could have the guy in your guard, but if they're really smashing you, you might consider that to be a bad position as well. Yeah, and where where mount breaks down as well is because you don't have the ability to frame with your legs and use your legs uh, to manage distance, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of the weapons that has been removed, or maybe not removed, but significantly reduced in effectiveness from your arsenal because the options you have for your legs are now far fewer. Now, bad positions are not always about weight placements. There's a kind of a misconception, especially for more junior people, that bad positions are about squashing your opponent and using your weight. Um, your weight is important. It, it helps. It's an advantage and, and one of the benefits to being on top. But really, the bigger benefit to being on top is 
you are creating a situation where your opponent is less mobile and you are now more mobile if you're the one on top. So it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's more about the guy on top having more options and the guy on the bottom having fewer. It's not so much about the weight. Now that said, if you're giving up a lot of weight, you know, being on the bottom can be very, very unpleasant. But in most cases, it's generally not the weight that you need to be most concerned about. It's the lack of mobility that you have combined with the amount of mobility your opponent has. Yeah. When we talk about alignment, these these all go back to uh, Professor Rob Bernanke's uh, concepts. Uh, really, for me, game-changing concepts that have to do with the way that we're... Uh, our biomechanical makeup as human beings, the way our skeletons are built, like Steve talked about, the posture structure based concepts. Um, I'm reminded of the concept of alignment versus position. So you could have a dominant position, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've broken your opponent's alignment. So the way that Rob kind of describes jujitsu, it's a game of, it's a lever game where you're basically using levers and, um, you know, different positions to break your opponent's alignment while you maintain your own alignment. And that's kind of the the difference between having someone in, let's say, you know, if you want to take an example like a Kimura, you know, you could have your arms in a figure four hold on their arm, but if you're not properly rotating that shoulder internally, then, you know, they're going to have room to move. They're not necessarily, uh, you know, if we want to compare it to a chessboard, they're not in check. The key is when we break alignment, we've, we've essentially checked our opponent. So if I have a strong Kimura control on my opponent, my opponent shouldn't be able to move. Uh, they shouldn't be able to drastically move their body because their shoulder is uh, locked down in such a way that it's stopping movement. So um, understanding that just because you're in a certain position, uh, you could be blanketed on top of your opponent's side control, but if they have all their posture structure and base, you're basically going to be trying to hold down someone who's going to be explosive, they're going to be moving, um, and you haven't taken away the resources that they need to defend. So that's a really important thing to think about. Uh, a lot of the time I just tell my opponents to, you know, imagine you're grappling a skeleton and imagine that you're, you know, breaking their posture, breaking the alignment of their limbs by either rotating them or, you know, isolating them two on one. And uh, also if you want to immobilize your opponent and stop them from moving their hips in certain ways, you can take them out of base. So uh, those are kind of the ideas behind alignment. And also the last thing is uh, we've discussed before the, the score game. So, you know, if you each have posture structure base, you each have three points when you're grappling in certain scenarios, kind of uh, try to plug in the posture structure base theory as a filter basically to what's going ha what's happening in front of you and um if you can eliminate two or even three of the the three um points of alignment that your opponent has while maintaining your, those three points for you um and and sort of uh make it out to be a score so you know if you have your opponent's posture structure base broken and you have all your alignment the score is three nothing you know maybe they have only base then it would be three one usually these are situations where it's time to attack you do not want to attack an opponent that where when the score is three three so this is another uh mm -hmm. another way that rob sort of illustrates alignment um, and everyday grappling scenarios. And it's a really great way to introduce alignment to your students. If it's something that, uh, if it's something that you want to start teaching. Yeah. I think that we all get a bit overly, um, concerned about what position we have. Whereas really what's most important is how effectively you've broken your opponent's alignment. It is possible to have a position on paper only where, you know, technically, you have side control on your opponent, but you don't really have any meaningful advantage. If you sparred against really high level people, you've probably felt this firsthand where, you know, maybe you are able to pass your, their guard or, or maybe they let you. Um, but once you get there, you've got nothing. You know, you can't grab an arm. You can't get around their head. They're continuing to move and you just don't feel like you have control of the situation. And it, pretty soon they're back to guard. This happens a lot. So if you feel that happen, that's an example of where you technically had a position, but you really didn't have alignment under control. So 
Matt, maybe a good thing to do is to provide some examples because it's been a while since we've done it. This on the topic of alignment. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, let's talk about like side control as an example. So mm-hmm. let's say that I'm on bottom, you're on top. It's uh, you know just a pretty standard side control. What are the things that like if I'm the guy on the bottom, I want to have my posture, my structure, and my base. So you know to rephrase, I want to have spinal alignment. I want to have my arms and legs in effective positioning, and I want to be able to move around and absorb motion. What are the things as the guy on the bottom that are going to make or break alignment for me? Well, if I have a cross face on you and I can effectively access your jaw as a lever and push your face away, then you're not going to be able to bridge into me. So I know that by turning your head a certain way with a strong cross face, that's going to affect your, the positioning of your spine. So that's that's kind of the main thing you'll see people do to try and control side control is a strong cross face. Without a strong cross face, your opponent's going to be bridging and moving and exploding. Um, if we want to talk about base, usually our oppo- it's going to be hard to stop our opponent's base from side control because generally they'll always be able to keep their feet in contact with the mat unless you kind of bundle their legs up and table them on your leg or do some kind of wrestling thing where you take their feet off the ground Mm -hmm. so um that's kind of a from side control i find that that's a pretty good way to to uh or it's, it's a pretty difficult thing to take away as their base so i usually focus on breaking the posture and the structure and structure what we want to do is you know usually you're gonna either well you've broken their structure technically by occupying side control mm-hmm. because now you're occupying the space next to their hips so they can't effectively get their knee and elbow together right if they if they had their knee and elbow connected on the low on the on the near side then you don't really have side control, right? So breaking their structure, occupying that space, and then applying a wedge on the other side of their body. So maybe it's your arm, right? Maybe uh, instead of doing that for breaking their structure, you're, you've isolated their far wrist and now you're pinning it to the ground, right? So they can't get that back. Now we can start looking for Kimuras and other attacks because we've, we've started to, to set up a two-on-one scheme on the far arm. So if you're on the bottom and you want to keep good alignment, you want to make sure that you're, you know, you're not letting your opponent grab your cross face. So you're usually going to be framing with your uh, right. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking at it from a certain certain point of view. You, you know, the answering the phone defense is a good way to say it. Um, creating a frame next to your head so that they can't effectively turn your head away is going to give you room to move your spine. Um, making sure that your elbows are close, your wrists aren't accessible, right? We're always trying to hide the ends of our levers, whether they're whether it's our legs or our arms. We don't want our opponent to get control of the ends of our levers. So usually a hand fight happens here and, you know, uh, I don't want to say the home alone defense where you're, you know, you're, but basically keeping your arms tethered to your core. Um, and then in terms of base, we're going to be looking to generate movement with our hips. So usually in a bridging format, uh, br- bridging fashion, looking to get, uh, looking to make some space and then usually what i what i'd recommend is like i like to turn into my opponent a lot of the time so i'll be bridging into my opponent and then doing like a hip escape movement but i got to make sure that when i bridge into my opponent that i'm uh i'm turning my spine towards him and putting an appropriate post with my foot down at such an angle that once i create that sideways angle that is hard for my opponent to flatten me out on my back again because then i'm kind of back to square one right so it's kind of it's you know if you can visualize the scenario when i bridge i bridge into my partner i have my frames i have my posture and then I'm going to try and set my my back post, my leg in a in a diagonal angle so that it can support the weight of my partner trying to crush me. Got it. So maybe let's talk about something a little bit different. Let's say your opponent has back mount on you. Yeah. In that case, back mount is a, a bit different from the other dominant positions because it's not so much weight based, right? It's more about the direction that you're facing. That's what really mm-hmm. makes back mount powerful. You're not able to look at your opponent because they're behind you. Mm-hmm. So... In a back mount scenario, if I've got you attacking me from behind, what are the things that I need to worry about to make sure that I have good alignment versus bad alignment as the person who's defending? So I'm attacking you? Yeah, you're attacking me. Like I'm I'm basically trying to ward off attacks from the back. What are the things that would make alignment good or bad for me? 
Well, I think it's going to depend on your uh, how well you can actually sell a Brazilian tap because that's probably going to be the, the best way for you to get out. No. Yeah, yeah. You, the, the trick is you have to your hand has to touch something. Like, yeah. uh, but you don't want to touch more. You know, once, maybe twice. But if you do it three times, then it's pretty clear it's a real tap. Yeah. Also, when the ref stops the fight. You can't start complaining immediately because then it's clear that you knew that was going to happen. You got to wait like a good two to three seconds and act like you're surprised at the result. And that's when you launch into the complaints about how you didn't tap. That's, that's right. That is the, the mental model for how you do an effective Brazilian tap. Also, studies have shown that if you have a uh, Portuguese speaking coach and if you speak Portuguese, your chances of the Brazilian tap being successful are about 50%. Yeah. So. Um, you, can, you can also attempt the Chael Sonnen tap where you scream instead of tapping and then you argue you afterwards that a scream is not a tap yeah um, that's right yeah so now granted that won't work because a scream is a tap and it didn't work for chael either but it's an option you know <laughs> okay so back back to <laughs> back to being serious now uh okay so if, if you're uh in the back control i mean there's different mechanisms that we use to control the back there's the most common is probably the seat belt right where which is a direct control of our opponent controlling our torso mm -hmm. connecting their hands clasping their hands around our torso then there's going to be an indirect direct control where they utilize a lever so that could be a motorcycle grip that could be a kimura control these are all very effective ways to control the back and we were actually discussing before we recorded about you know are the hooks really that important when we're controlling the back the hooks do play pivotal roles in terms of like if you're going to use a body triangle on someone and and uh, resetting the back position, the hooks are definitely very useful. But as long as you can have some sort of chest to back connection, um, you know, aside from points, you can actually have some pretty effective control utilizing those three methods that I just talked about by just keeping your head in the right position next to your opponent's head and having that chest to back connection. So, um you know, hooks, we, we reward them in jiu-jitsu competitions with points, but not necessarily the main control from the back that I've I've used necessarily. Yeah. I think Marcelo Garcia is a really good example of that. The guy who basically uh, made the seatbelt like very mainstream, right? Um when you're when let's say you know someone's got a seatbelt on you, so they're not utilizing a lever; they're literally just holding on to you. So, uh, generally speaking, my hands are dedicated to defending the choke, and mm -hmm. that's going to be the hand that's on top usually, the choking arm. And then my hip movement and my feet being in base are going to dictate how I'm going to hop over hooks and defeat body triangles or whatever. A common common reaction and a common mistake is to use your hands to start dealing with the legs and mm -hmm. you know very you have to be very careful if this is something that you do and i i don't recommend anyone does it because nowadays when uh we're finding a lot of really advanced ways to get chokes and neck cranks you really always have to be paying attention to your opponent's arms across your face so uh generally <laughs> my arms are dedicated to defending chokes and attacks and my feet are in base so um lastly one, one of the worst things that someone can do when they're in back control is kind of just lie there with dead legs uh and when you see guys do this they're it's almost like they don't have a they don't have a desire to get out. So it's really important that when someone's on your back that you're constantly like for me, I'm in a constant bridging state. I try mm -hmm. to stay bridged. I try to arch my back and have the best posture I can while I'm getting my head and my back to the mat. Then I'm going to start to shift my hips out by using hip movement and by using, by putting my feet in base. Um, if I can have like an arched bridged back, I find that it's a lot more of a successful way to defend the back than just sitting there and basically allowing my opponent to put a bend in my hips if, if if my legs and my torso are at like a 90 degree angle like I'm sitting in a chair I'm not really doing anything my posture is not engaged at all I want to make my body heavy for my partner I want to get my head to the mat and I want to start immediately trying to try to spin out of there and look in a regard well it also creates a pocket for your opponent to to put pressure against right when you're when you're kind of bent like like you're sitting in a chair um, you know your your hips are kind of like at an indent they're kind of concave That's right. and your opponent can put something there like a foot to create pressure that can really manipulate you you see this yeah. a lot when someone is playing guard 
hard. If you can force them to bend over, um, you know, you can put, drive your foot into their hip and it's pretty easy to sweep from there. Whereas if they have good posture, then if I try to put my foot against their hip, it just slides off, right? Yeah. And the reason for, it's not magic, right? The reason is because of alignment. Um, yeah. In every position, relative to your goal, there's always going to be uh, the best posture structure base for that position. And likewise for your opponent, there's also going to be the best, po- the, you know, a, a certain position for him to place his his uh, base, his the structure of his limbs and his the positioning of his spine. So knowing what your opponent's goals are and trying to uh, break their alignment while maintaining yours is mm-hmm. basically the key to uh, efficient jujitsu from what I've studied. Yeah. And if you can get someone to bend over and you can put a wedge against their hip, you can now, you know, normally when we talk about generating base, we're talking about like using our feet, uh, you know, to push off or to move around on the mat. But if your opponent is bent over in some way and you can get a wedge or something against their hip, you can actually generate base off of them. That's right. Like that, that's actually a super powerful technique for sweeping and not, not really the topic of this episode, but that's where like the sickle and the tripod sweep come up is where you basically force your opponent into a bend and then you knock them over. So that would be an example of how uh, base isn't always the ground. Base is relative to your goal. Yeah, yeah. And that's how Rob has taught us. Yeah. Now, from from my perspective, the back mount is a weird case when it comes to dominant positions because like we said, all of the other dominant positions, whether it be side control or mount or knee on belly, they involve the person on top um, using a combination of gravity and the fact that you've got the floor against you on the bottom side to restrict your motion, right? So they're they're kind of based on some degree of pressure in, in some capacity, whereas back mount is quite different. You know, the reason why back mount works it's a very different mechanic for breaking the alignment. The person can move. They often have free motion of their arms and their legs. Like they can kind of do what they want, but the problem is they can't face you. <laughs> so, yeah. so they, they have generally pretty good ability to create posture, structure, and base in the wrong direction. That's what makes backbound um, effective is that, you know, you're not necessarily um, immediately able to kill these things, at least not as effective as maybe if you had side control, but your opponent's ability to utilize their alignment is is not, I mean, if they can't look towards you, then they can't respond to incoming threats. So you are, you have, you, you're kind of like, you have alignment, but in the wrong direction. So therefore you don't have alignment, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'll just say right now, if, uh, if your part of your game involves getting leg locks on someone who's on your back, you are going to get that move sometimes, but usually when you're in a high level situation, that's not going to be a reliable mm-hmm. attack. Like the, uh, the footlock from the back, you know, the body triangle submission, uh, while, while someone's on your back, it's not something that I've found reliable. You mean where someone body triangles you and you start attacking their feet, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it, you know, it's, it's it's you got probably five percent chance that's gonna yeah. work like or not even like against a really good opponent it's never gonna work and you're you're gonna expose your own neck if you use your hands to try and submit them while you're in a bad position so i mean generally speaking we always talk about like position over submission right i don't want to attack someone when they're in such a dominant position i'd rather focus my efforts on escaping and mm-hmm. regarding yeah 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 it's something that we've uh, talked about in previous episodes, and that is defending with purpose, right? Every, everything that you do when you are in a bad position should be with the intent of trying to escape. You want to be defending and not just defense by stalling where, you know, you're hoping that your opponent just gives up, but every defense that you employ should be with the intent of improving position. Now, um, attempting to submit from a bad position, it, it does have its place, but you've got to understand that it normally requires you to expose yourself to more risk <laughs> than there is reward. You know, it it is very hard to submit someone good from uh, an inferior position. And it also tends to expose you to a lot of risks. Now, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, it commonly also requires your opponent to have a lesser skill level than you. Yeah. Now, that said, there are times when maybe you can't actually finish a submission, but you can at least threaten an attack that forces your opponent to respond in a particular way. Yeah, that's true. And that, that can be advantageous, but you have to understand that the risk is higher, right? Like if I'm on top of you and I'm trying some sort of collar choke, I'm generally pretty safe. If I'm on the bottom and I'm trying a collar choke, um, there is a very high percentage chance of that going wrong. So it's not that I can't do it. It's just that 
it, I have to know that the odds are not in my favor at that point, and I've got to be really smart about that. It, but I, I do find personally that sometimes as a, a threat, you know, to an opponent, kind of like a porcupine with spikes, you know, if your opponent is in a dominant position, sometimes you can um, attack a submission that maybe you're not going to finish, but it forces them to give up space, and that might yeah. make it worth it. But the problem is, again, most submissions require you to engage your arms in some sort of way that could expose you to other attacks. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be really smart about it yeah and and just going for a submission on someone with like really good alignment again is the risk is really high because you're you're essentially attacking someone when they have all the resources they need to defend and if they counter you it could be disastrous for you because you're already in a bad position so um if you're gonna do like a choke from the bottom or something like that like a suicide choke just understand that if your opponent understands how to posture out of this, your arms are now going to be extended yeah. and you're going to be an issue. Now, if, if you have a guard and you can, you know, you're going for like a cross choke or a loop choke from the guard, then that's going to be a little bit more forgiving because at least you're you're in position, you have your guard in front of you, you know, you have layers of defense. So uh, another common example I see is guys will be getting their guard passed and then they'll go for a Kimura. And the um, you know when the when you go for a Kimura when you have your guard passed you could if you rotate the shoulder properly you could invert and come up on the back but it's a lot of movement and you can only do that when you really effectively control your opponent's shoulder. Uh, I think a common example of this going wrong is when Marcelo armbar Diego Sanchez at ADCC where you see a guy on the bottom going for a Kimura when he has no guard and Marcelo just in highlight real fashion steps over his head and arm bars him mm-hmm. now that only works because marcelo knows that setup and diego thought that he could get away with it but he didn't have the shoulder rotation needed to immobilize marcelo's shoulder so he's attacking someone with full alignment and as a result he gets arm barred yeah the, the kimura position is a good example of where alignment becomes important because the kimura can actually favor either the guy doing the kimura or the guy receiving it depending on the alignment like if someone Someone tries to Kimura you and they're not able to pull that arm free from your body and establish rotation, you can use that grip to actually pinch their arm and then control them. In, in order for the guy doing the Kimura, uh, whether it be to finish or to do a Kimura trap, in order for that to be effective, they've got to be able to pull that arm away from the rest of their your, their body, your, your body, and they've got to be able to put some twist into it. If they can't do those things, then the Kimura actually might favor the guy on the bottom because even though it's a Kimura either way, they might have more control over you than you do of them yeah another example of of go you know when you go for a submission like anytime you ex- you outreach your arms away from your body you're putting yourself at risk whether mm-hmm. that's a standing position whether that's in you know in on the ground so uh you know a common defense i really like is if someone's going for a darce choke on me I'm going to make sure that I, first of all, they don't break my posture down because that's the number one reason yeah. for these chokes to be successful is your posture gets broken. So, so that's where they drive your head in and they, they flat you out. And now you're, you've gone from being turtled to being like just on the ground in this fetal position. I right? mean, they essentially put your chin to your chest, yeah. right? And let's say I'm already, uh, or, or I'm in the turtle because they're trying to thread that arm underneath my armpit and around my neck if i can take that arm my arm that's isolated and get my structure back by bringing my elbow to my body i'll i i will be the one who's now controlling the structure by pinching their arm Mm -hmm. so i can use this to actually counter the position and put torque on their shoulder um and that's it's actually one of my favorite things to do when someone goes for a darse on me as long as i have my posture i know it's going to be pretty much virtually impossible for them to choke me now if they break my posture just a little bit the chances of them breaking it all the way and finishing the choke go up a lot. So it's really important that I'm diligent in maintaining that alignment. But I can, I, I realize that as they're trying to thread that arm through my armpit, I can isolate it and now take advantage of that as well. So, you know, at first, these alignment concepts are kind of hard to wrap our heads around, especially when we're just talking about them. But if you can, if you can, um, impl- uh, have an instructor that shows you in each position and you really dice- dissect where the, the, you know, where's the free lever? Do I have alignment right now? Do I have my posture? Do I have my structure? Uh, it's, it's probably the most effective way that I can, you know, filter good jujitsu from bad jujitsu and, and really make it effective. Right. So maybe actually to recap this kind of these examples of alignment, just to try to simplify alignment means 
three things. It means you've got posture, you've got structure, you've got base, and your opponent ideally does not. You want to try to have those things while denying them to your opponent. Generally speaking, and maybe not always, but generally speaking, if you're able to effectively like face and look towards your opponent and engage the power of your core and your spine, that means you've got posture. If you can't do that because you're being forced to look away or whatever, you don't. Um, if you can use your arms and legs to check your opponent's motion and to frame while denying them the ability to grab onto your arms and legs and manipulate them, that means you have structure, right? If, on the contrary, your opponent is, you know, going to town and grabbing your arms and arm dragging you left and right, then you don't have structure. And if you have the ability to move around the way that you want, especially in, with like bump escapes, hip, uh, hip escapes, you have the ability to plant on your feet and move, um, and to generate some degree of force, that means you have base. Whereas if your opponent has taken that away and you're kind of flat as a pancake, you can't move effectively, um, that means you don't. So those are kind of the three things that tell you that you have alignment. Um, now, I guess kind of the question is, how do you make that happen? Uh, one of the examples that you just provided, Matt, which I thought was re really good, was when you're on the defense, you really never want your opponent to be able to grab on and latch onto an arm or a leg. That's going to be the, the main thing that gets you, right? And this kind of comes down to making sure that your limbs are effectively coiled and tight. You don't ever want to expose an arm or a leg or leave it dangling, um, in a, especially from a, uh, when you're in an inferior position. Because if you have an outstretched arm or a leg, then that it gives your opponent something to latch onto. Now, from my experience, most people know pretty quickly that you're not supposed to just leave your arms hanging out, right? I mean, we are, we're all told from day one, don't try to bench press people off of you. So people get that into their heads pretty quick. But I noticed that a lot of people don't apply that kind of thinking to their legs, where they might have, you know, yeah, they might be keeping their arms tucked in tight, but their legs are kind of outstretched or they're out straight, or maybe they're like entangled in their, they're trying to go for some grapevine thing on their opponent and but their, their legs are far away from their body so they're kind of like it, they've got their legs outstretched as if they're standing up but but they're not they're on the ground right whereas so they're not in base yeah so they're not really in base um and more importantly even if they are able to apply some degree of motion if your legs are outstretched that is a handle for your opponent to manipulate even if they're not reaching over there and grabbing your your leg with their hand, they can use their legs against yours. You know, a common example is if you're on the bottom and side control and you're not really paying much attention to what your legs are doing, it's pretty easy for your opponent to just leg drag you, right? Like do like a leg drag right from that position and then go right to mount. Um, that's, that's something that a lot of people are not really cognizant of. So... Uh, having proper structure means not just making sure that your arms are tucked in, but also that your legs are tucked in as well. Yeah, and generally, I've, I find when I'm regarding and in bad positions, I, I'm always trying to just create knee elbow connections. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a really key concept in terms of getting your guard back is basically as soon as I do my hip escape, I'm trying to bring my knees and elbows together because I want to create that frame that protects my torso and prevents my opponent from occupying the space next to my hip. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the, the reoccurring theme whenever we're inverted or regarding from any position is trying to make those connections. Yeah. In, from my experience, one of the most effective ways to deal with almost any inferior position is to focus on establishing an elbow knee connection. And, you know, we talked about this substantially in the past, but by this, we mean, you know, you bring your elbows and your knees kind of close together. You don't necessarily have to have your elbow and your knee directly touching, but the idea is you're trying to make yourself small and you're trying to deny your opponent the ability to put a wedge against your stomach, right? You don't want them to be able to cut your body in half like a pizza. Um, whether you're on the bottom in side control or knee on belly or mounts or whether your opponent has the back, you can use an elbow knee connection as a strategy to get out in any of those situations. Uh, generally speaking, if the guy's on top of you, if you can connect your elbows and your knees together, that means that you can get back to, to guard much easier, right? Um, because if your opponent cannot break your elbow knee connection, they cannot really flatten you out and separate your arms and legs. And, and that means that you still have the ability to regard quite easily. Even if your opponent is on your back, if you can get an elbow knee connection, it makes it very hard for them to properly establish the use of their hooks. Uh, and that means that it's actually a lot easier to turn around and re and get back into their guard. So it, it's a very good strategy at all times for making sure that your opponent does not just completely break your alignment.
Mm-hmm. And it's like even going upside down, inverting. Yeah. Quite commonly, I connect my my arms and my legs together in that fashion, and it just makes the inversion better. It makes uh, it's a kinetic chain, right? Yeah. It makes everything stronger. It also reduces injury. Um, a mistake that I've made in the past while inverting is, you know, it's, it's easy to lose track of what's going on with your body when you're upside down. Um, a mistake yeah. I've made in the past is I would invert and I would try to put my, you know, kick my legs out onto my opponent's hip. And because my leg was exposed and away from my body, if my opponent grabs that leg and torques it, it can really do some damage to the knee, right? Whereas if you keep an elbow-knee connection, it's very hard for your opponent to arm drag or leg drag you because your entire body is kind of coiled up like a spring. Mm-hmm. Yep. And even in the top position, if I'm in someone's guard and I'm, you know, I'm worried about closed guard attacks, hopefully I can... I'd like to be able to pop their guard open uh, if I can. I have some good posture. I'm not looking down. I want to create like a post with my knee and my elbow mm-hmm. connected. That way I know that my opponent's not going to be able to shoot their hips up into my armpits and isolate my arms. Yeah, yeah. So the, the important thing here to note is that, um, you know, a lot of the time when you start training jujitsu, most of the 101 escapes that you are shown involve some degree of, you know, big explosive bridges or, you know, something like that or, or hipping, hip escaping and getting back to guard. In reality, these things usually don't work as nicely and cleanly as they do in practice. Um, Normally, it is kind of a a series of progressive improvements until you're able to either get to turtle or get to guard or or stand up. Very rarely do you hip escape out and go right back into guard right away. Um, Focusing on having an elbow-knee connection helps you make those gradual positional improvements because you can move relatively safely without your opponent being able to pull one of your arms or legs away from the rest of your body. So it's it's a very good strategy to deal with almost all offensive positions. Yeah. Cool. So one other thing that is extremely important, especially at the beginner level when it comes to surviving bad positions, is being aware of what your body is doing and how it can be working against you. I was actually asked by one of our listeners to talk a bit about this when we, we covered the survival topics. Um, the big things that you have to worry about when you're in a bad position is that, you know, when you are feeling threatened, your body is naturally going to go into a fight or flight response. Um, you're going to tense up, your breathing is going to get ragged and excessive. And in an actual combat situation, these things work against you. It takes a long time to train your body to stop doing this stuff. So, you know, someone actually emailed and asked and said, hey, I know I'm not supposed to, you know, I need to control my breathing and I know I need to stay loose, but I can't. (laughs) And that's that's not something to blame yourself about, right? Your body has a natural way of responding to threats. You're going to breathe faster and you're going to tense up. And your heart's going to Yeah, and your heart's heart going to race. And it is going to take years of combating that natural response before you get comfortable. And and there will always be situations where you're thrown off guard and before you know it, you've tensed up. And like, for me, that still happens. You know, sometimes where if I'm put in a bad position that I didn't expect and I get a bit scared, you know, I, I will make those mistakes. Um, I guess the, the thing to talk about is why these are bad, right? When it comes to controlling your breathing. I mean, the main reason why it's bad is if you're not utilizing oxygen effectively, your heart rate's going to go up, you're going to get tired, you're going to run out of energy a lot faster. When it comes to staying loose and and not tensing up, that's important because first of all, you're going to burn your muscles out if you're tense. Uh, Second of all, if your arm or your leg or whatever is tense and pushing against your opponent, it gives them a much stronger handle to move you around. Yeah, it whereas, becomes an accessible lever. Yeah, whereas if your arm is kind of loose and, you know, it kind of like flaps in the wind, then your opponent has less control of that arm if they grab onto it. So mm-hmm. these things are important. And there's really no good answer um, other than just continually training and ha- having some degree of awareness. You know, you yeah. need to... You need to become mentally aware of when your breathing is um, is is faster than it needs to be, and you need to become mentally aware of when you tense up. And the best thing to do is just try to catch yourself doing this. If you ever are, are training and you feel that your arm is tensed up, or you feel that you're breathing out of control, use that as an opportunity to slow it down a bit. Yeah, the, I mean the practitioner who is. Um more knowledgeable of the position obviously through just years of experience but but also who's aware of the alignment concepts and who can just stay in a better 
aligned position overall is going to need to use less energy. So, Mm -hmm. you know, all, it all comes back to the alignment concepts. If you understand how alignment works and, you know, you, you, you basically know how to, to keep a good position relative to your opponent, you're going to be burning way less calories and you're going to be way less stressed because you know that you are in a good position. It's, it's when you it's when you don't really know what you're doing and you're not really super knowledgeable that's when you start to freak out that's when things go really downhill fast so it's very important um to know what is your goal what is the next step am i in alignment how do i get back to alignment how do i get back to my guard yeah yeah absolutely if a, a big reason why that fight or flight response gets triggered is because you're not comfortable with the situation so you're scared if you are comfortable with the core concepts of alignment then you should at least have some degree of comfort in almost any weird position because the alignment concept is intended to be universal so that should give you a bit of a security blanket to feel more comfortable when you encounter these awkward unusual positions Um, i would say though that you know, learning to stay loose and control your breathing is something that is it's hard to do when you're just focusing on doing it while you're training. It's something that you can even do when you're off the mat, right? If you spend a few times here and there during the day, just trying to be mindful of how you're breathing and make sure that you're breathing slowly and deliberately, that kind of building that into a habit is something that then can translate better onto the mats, right? The, the whole goal behind being controlled and staying loose when you're training is to avoid burning excess energy. Um, and to avoid creating liabilities for yourself that your opponent can exploit. So it's super important to make sure that you are mindful of when this is happening. If you're really struggling um, with staying loose and with controlling your breathing, um, you can also always ask your opponent to help you because they'll notice, right? And they can they can yeah. tell you and say, you're tense here. You know, you might want to loosen up. And I always appreciate it when someone tells me, hey, you've, you've tensed up a little bit here too much. Just be mindful of that. It can be very helpful and prevent you from doing it next time. And something that... Um maybe we don't think about a lot. Uh, I'm inspired by Marcelo Garcia again in this way is just keeping a straight face, right? Mm -hmm. Like keeping a poker face, it subconsciously almost tricks your mind into thinking that you're really calm. And for me, it helps me keep my heart rate down. I just by keeping a straight face, no matter how bad the situation, you know, you want to try and keep that, keep that calm persona and really uh, embrace it because it helps you. I find it helps me stay more efficient and I can, you know, save more energy for the next fight. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not even just so much about saving energy. It's more just about the fact that um, if you burn yourself out defending for bad positions, it becomes much easier for your opponent to then just kind of continue to dominate you. Um, This is actually a strategy that some people employ where they will, they'll get kind of partway through a pass and they intentionally will not finish the pass right away because they want to force you to burn and expend tremendous amounts of energy defending the pass. And then by the time they do pass, you have nothing left, right? So it's, it's a very valid strategy to force your opponent to burn their muscles out. Um, Absolutely. So it's something that you need to be cognizant of. Um, It's not even just about uh, you know energy even if you've got cardio for days if your muscles exhaust themselves um and you know then you're just not able to actually move or frame or defend effectively anymore and that's probably going to meet spell the end of the fight at that point um one other thing to talk about i that i find helpful matt and again you tell me if you agree on this um especially when you're dealing with positions where your opponent is based on top of you so meaning like they're knee riding you or they're mounted on you or they have side control uh, I find that it's instead of using big explosive positions or um, ex- escapes, it's better to just constantly be moving and doing little micro escapes. And we talked about micro transitions in an earlier episode. So by, by this, what I mean is like, you're not going to get out of a good person's side control by doing one hip escape. In fact, it, it will almost never work even against like a blue belt. Um, what you need to do is just be constantly moving and never letting them get comfortable because if that happens, um, then and they can never get comfortable, eventually there will be a big enough window of space that you can escape. Um, the way that I like to describe this is like if I if someone has a knee, knee mount on me or side control on me, they're basically using me for base. They're sitting on me like I'm a table, right? They're, they have base because they're sitting on me. And if I'm just sitting there and I'm not constantly moving, 
If I stop moving for even a second, then I become like a stable platform that they can rest themselves off yeah. uh, on top of. And then it gets very difficult for me to start moving again and to, and to generate force. Whereas if I'm constantly making small wiggling motions, then instead of, you know, sitting on a table, it's like them trying to sit on a beach ball. It's way harder because the platform underneath them is always shifting. And that is a good way to attack their base, right? When you're the guy on the bottom, you don't have a lot of ways to attack the guy on the top's base. But if he's trying to plant his weight on top of you, if you're constantly moving, even if the guy's really heavy, he can never really sink that weight down on you and use you as a platform. So it being a shifting platform and constantly making these little micro movements is very helpful to, to get out. I find that, so rather than trying to do like one big bridge or one big hip escape, I'm just constantly wiggling and doing little hip escapes and little bridges and never letting my opponent settle their weight on top of me. Yeah, like a lot of people, they'll say, oh, you know, when they're learning they're beginners they're saying oh how show me an escape from side control and it's like there is no one escape (laughs) yeah there you know i can give you concepts that will hopefully lead to escape but the fact is like you said is it's a it's a bunch of small micro movements or or wiggling right and Mm -hmm. and you uh, usually a combination of uh frame bump shrimp type movements Mm -hmm. right to get your guard back um it's it's going to take multiple attempts and and like you said if you if you just settle on on the bottom you give your partner the ability to sort of settle down now and really focus in on probably the next the next goal is going to be to isolate a limb or mm-hmm. or whatever it is so continuously moving and not stopping moving and always trying to get your your alignment back is basically what you want to do uh escaping positions like mount you know if you're in a position like mount when you're carrying all your opponent's weight and you don't have the ability of your legs to use as frames you know you i uh, i can't remember who told me this saying but it was basically i can't move you a lot from the bottom, but I can move you a little so I can move myself a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the idea in jujitsu is I'm not trying to bench press you off of me or, or trying to do these giant escapes. I'm just trying to move a, move you a little bit so that I create enough space that I can now move myself using my hip movement derived from how I'm basing my, my feet. So yeah. And the idea is then that you move yourself into a dominant position or a more dominant position so that you don't need to necessarily move your opponent, right? That's right. Like, so when I'm escaping bad positions, generally, the goal is get back to guard. It's almost always get back to guard. Uh, I don't really like to teach my students to use the guard as, you know, a, a, a sweeping submitting tool. First, you have to learn how to use it just to manage distance. Mm-hmm. Once we can always make sure that our guard can't get past, then all of a sudden the sweeps and the submissions are going to be more plentiful. So if I'm, if I'm inside control and I try and submit you or do a big sweeping bridge or, you know, try and, try and create this big movement, it's a lot more efficient and a lot more high percentage for me to just focus on making a little bit of space and getting my guard back so that I have some frames I can use to manage the distance. That's yeah. that's kind of the, uh, you know, when we're talking about phases of guard, again, that's uh, another one of Rob's concepts that really kind of changed the way that I look at how I use my guard. And I realized you really don't have to be like uh, exciting necessarily. You don't have to be going for these submissions from these bad positions or, you know, I try and get like a big bridging reversal from side control, mm-hmm. which I won't even get points from in IBJJF for some reason. But uh, just regarding is enough. And that's uh, that's a higher percentage way to play the position and a, a better answer to have when you get out of the bad position. And another thing to bear in mind too is that attempting um, the big explosive escapes, like if you're trying to get out by doing one big hip bump, or one big hip escape. Um, number one, the problem there is you're going to burn a lot of energy. And number two, when it doesn't work, because it's easy for your opponent to block one attack. When it doesn't work, you're going to settle back down and it's going to be easier for them to plant on you now because you stop moving. Yeah. Um, but number three, because you're doing a big explosive motion, it opens you up to other attacks, right? Like the most common one is if I have side control on you and you try to do a big explosive bridge on me, it's super easy for me to transition right to mount, yeah. right? Um, whereas if you're constantly making small microscopic adjustments, I can never get comfortable settling my weight on you. And it's not one thing that I've got to counter. It's just constant motion. And that's harder than countering one single attack. 
Yeah. So instead of thinking, it is again, like alignment versus position. I'm not trying to sweep you from a bottom side control and get into a top side control. I mean, it might happen. It's there's a, it's a real possibility, but it would be a smarter strategy for me to just move a little bit, bump, shrimp, move, eventually get my structures back. So I have knee elbow connection. Now all of a sudden I'm, I'm actually in pretty good shape. Then I can decide what's my next. Now I can look to make my guard more offensive than just being on the defense. Yeah. I think when like a, a white belt or a blue belt is on bottom mount, their thought process is I am going to do a hip escape. Whereas a black belt or a brown belt's thought process from that position might be, okay, I need to make sure that my opponent is not able to rest his weight on me. I need to establish an elbow knee connection, uh, you know, and then eventually at some point I might be able to do the big hip escape. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's um, rather than just focusing on a technique and trying to do one move, you're focusing on making constant improvements to your alignment and that will hopefully lead you to the to a better move in the future. But you're not, you're not getting like laser focused on trying to do one technique and it's going to make or break the whole game mm-hmm. cool anything else you want to cover matt on survival um i mean staying calm like we talked about and just you usually uh there's very in my opinion there's very minimal situations where being explosive and and really uh exerting tons of effort is a good way to escape you know bad posi- uh, a, a bad situation when if there's points on the line it's a little bit different in competition because if you get points scored on you, that could literally be the end of the match. So, or also if there are time constraints is the other thing, right? Like sometimes ex- you don't have the luxury of time when it comes to escaping. Exactly, right? Like if there's 30 seconds left and you're just hanging on, you're up by two points and the guy's like, he's got one hook in, he's trying to get that other hook in. Yeah, you should be scrambling. You should yeah. be you should be hiding that hip so that he can't get the hook in. But, um, you know, generally speaking, if you're stuck in bad positions, then... Uh, an academic way to, to get out, staying calm and assessing what's in front of you. Do I have alignment? Am I preventing my opponent from, you know, uh, am I defending my neck, you know, if or am I just leaving that top arm open? Things like this are going to make the difference um, rather than just ex- trying to explode out of situations. And like I said, there's a time and place to, to really exert that energy. But generally in training, I try and tell my guys to just keep calm and, and uh, look for that way out using your brain, not necessarily with your uh, athleticism. Right. Or if you, the worst case scenario, the Brazilian tap is always there for you, right? Yeah, try. you guys should all have, be black belts in Brazilian taps yeah. right now. Like tap, tapping is the only move in jiu-jitsu that has a 100% success rate. So <laughs> if you can master the Brazilian tap, you can get out of every position without any consequence, right? But just, yeah, make, make sure that your your strategy for arguing with the ref is on point. Like, that's a whole micro game in and of itself is how to argue with the ref and then get your coaches involved and raise a big stink and threaten to walk off the mat. Like, ideally, you want your coach to threaten to pull the entire team out of the tournament. That's how in committed you want to be to the Brazilian <laughs> <laughs> Um And, uh, yeah, no, I guess another thing we should talk about, just in terms of joint locks, like if we're talking about leg locks or arm bars, if you're caught in an arm bar and you're not sure, you know, when when you should. I mean, funny thing is in jiu-jitsu, we tend to know like from an earlier stage if we need to tap from an arm bar or not. But when people learn leg locks, they're not really sure when they should tap to a leg mm-hmm. lock. They kind of just tap uh, early because they don't know what's going on. They don't have the same sensitivity in the legs. It's kind of a reoccurring thing I keep seeing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, generally speaking, if I'm in an arm bar and and my opponent is laying into my arm, but let's say my thumb's turned down, right? We should all know that detail by now. Thumb needs to point in the direction of the fall, uh, of the hyperextension. And um, if I don't feel a strong wedge on my shoulder, then there's going to be movement in my shoulder and I'm not going to need to tap because I feel like there's uh the pressure will bleed from the fulcrum point to the shoulder. So the, the leg locks are really the exact same thing. Just a, a brief discussion on on leg locks like if you if you're in a in an ashigurami and your partner's got a really strong set of wedges that immobilizes your hip and you know there's a wedge behind your knee and he's got a nice bite and you feel like you can't move yeah you should you should tap right if he's got the heel exposure but if your opponent's in an ashigurami and they have heel exposure but you've disrupted the wedges to their hip you're able to get up in base and generally standing a lot of the time 
stops almost all leg locks. Um, if you can just build your alignment back by building your base and your posture and start to start to disrupt their wedges, then you don't really need to tap. So it, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain over voice, but, um, once you start training leg locks for a few months, it becomes really obvious that they're actually pretty, the defense to leg locks is pretty simple and it all has to do with get into base, untangle the wedges and, uh, and start to look to extract your knee line. Right. And, and if I am in an Ashigurami, whether it's an outside Ashi or, or whatever, my goal is always prevent my opponent from, from getting heel exposure. Right. If we're playing heel hooks. If he does get heel exposure, then I got to assess my risks, you know, are his, are his control mechanisms strong enough that I, that I could, uh, possibly kick my heel and hide it again, or is my hip fully immobilized? Cause if he's got the heel exposed and the hips fully immobilized, then, you know, that, that could be all she wrote time to Brazilian tap. For <laughs> yeah. And if, well, of course, especially if you Brazilian tap to a leg lock, you also have to make sure to complain that leg locks are dirty. That's a very big, <laughs> important part of the process. And it's not what Helio would have intended. Yeah. Master Helio did not intend for you to be playing with people's feet, people. That's just, that's just gross. It's not professional. It's not the, it's not true Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Um, <laughs> we're going to get in trouble. Anyway, anyway, um, yeah, actually on that note, you know, if you, if you are ever in a submission and you find yourself tapping, not because you're in danger, but because you're, you don't know if you're in danger, so you're being safe. That's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. That just means that you're learning something new. Um, if you get into those situations, my suggestion is after you tap, just explain to your opponent that, that hey, I'm new at this. Can you just kind of, you know, help me understand where, when am I in danger? When am I not? Because you kind of need to feel it. And especially when you're new at footlocks, most people don't really know what kind of the, the acceptable threshold is. So it's always okay to ask people to kind of like try it on and walk you through exactly when you need to tap and what the warning signs are. Yeah. When we're doing, when we're doing joint locks, generally the way it works is you have your control on the end of the lever, whether it's an arm bar grabbing the, you know, the hand and then you have your wedging mechanics at the other end of the lever. So whether that's good, if it's an arm bar, it's going to be you pinching your knees and pulling your heels to your butt and then bridging. If it's a leg lock, it's going to be, you know, whatever, depending on the ashigurami that you're in, you want to immobilize the hip, have a wedge behind the knee and have your dig at the end of the lever, which is going to be either like a heel hook or an ankle lock. So mm-hmm. those are kind of the main ingredients for, uh, for joint locks. Like for example, if I have a knee bar, like I'm really fully extending that leg, but my feet are completely dead and I'm not creating a wedge on my opponent's hip or butt. You don't have a knee bar. You I just have a knee. There's I d- no I bar. <laughs> exactly. There's going to be no, uh, there's no platform that I can apply the base from. So, you know, it's, it's all, it all has to do with lever mechanics. And if you want to, if this interests you and you want to learn leg locks, I highly recommend Rob's, uh, the modern leg lock formula. It's, you know, hours and hours of leg lock knowledge and mechanics and information. It's definitely an amazing resource for leg entanglement. So definitely check that out. Got it. So just covering the mental models we talked about today. Uh, first and foremost, we talked about alignment. Uh, alignment means having posture, structure, and base while denying those to your opponent. If you want a more detailed breakdown of alignment, feel free to listen to episode one where we cover it in its entirety. We talked about alignment versus position, meaning focusing around rather than focusing on establishing dominant positions on paper, making sure that you have proper alignment uh, and focusing on getting that alignment over what position you technically may have. We talked about defending with purpose, meaning that every defense you employ should be not for the purposes of stalling, but it should be with the intent of actually improving your position. We talked about limb coiling, meaning making sure that you don't expose an elbow or an arm or a leg in any meaningful way that your opponent can exploit. Similarly, we talked about the elbow-knee connection, which is a very common and powerful example of how to coil your limbs. It is actually an escape strategy that you can use from almost any inferior position. We talked about kinetic chains, which is where um, by connecting different parts of your body together, such as an elbow or a knee, the connection itself strengthens the structure and the frame. We talked about controlling your breathing and staying loose. um, Two very important things to understand, especially from uh, an inferior position. We talked about micro transitions, meaning 
focusing on small but persistent movements to create space versus trying single one-off escapes. And we talked about shifting platforms, meaning um, don't let your opponent just use you as a platform and, and create base by putting their weight on you. You need to constantly be moving so that it's less like they're trying to sit on a table and more like they're trying to sit on a beach ball. Matt, anything else you wanted to cover on the topic of bad positions? Nothing really. Uh, the alignment concepts just keep coming up over and over again. We always refer to them. Please check out our uh, episodes on alignment. And um, yeah, if you're ever in a choke and your opponent's not breaking your posture, you can probably survive that choke. So understanding that, um, that's going to give you, you know, <laughs> and, and it's funny, the other day I was in a guillotine and it was tight and I actually did eventually get out. Uh, I was at the end, I was gagging and my eyes were watering, but... I knew that because my opponent didn't have a successful wedge breaking my posture behind my head that I'd eventually be able to get out. So Actually, I was just giving you an out. I wanted to see if you could get out. So it wasn't You're welcome. You. You're welcome. No, guys, it wasn't him. It was me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, alignment, that's kind of the, the main thing that this episode is actually kind of turned into an alignment episode because uh well it's so critical it's to so surviving critical. bad positions right yeah. because most of most of getting out of a bad position is making sure that your alignment is not broken that's the most important thing if your opponent can never truly break your alignment they can't really do that much from a bad position and eventually you'll get out yeah, yeah. so yep yeah. uh and i hope you guys li- uh, enjoyed listening and keep the questions coming yeah we're enjoying answering them thank you so much and speaking of which we do have one question to okay. talk about we were asked to talk about uh how you balance all of the cool flashy stuff versus the basics so someone wrote in and mentioned that you know a, a common thing especially with uh junior people is they get really enthralled by all of the super cool flashy moves and they yeah. can maybe possibly over over focus on those and everyone knows that you're supposed to focus on the basics but you do have to have some fun in life <laughs> so yeah. so the a question here was, uh, you know, how do you balance these things? Uh, I The way that I, I think about this kind of stuff, I mean, I, there was apparently a famous conversation between Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee back, I guess, when they were shooting Enter the Dragon. And I, I, I may be misremembering this, but I think Bruce Lee was trying to convince Chuck Norris that throwing high kicks is stupid. And Chuck Norris's response was basically, well, yeah, but sometimes I just want to throw a high kick. <laughs> and there's something to that, right? I mean, uh, John Jones also early in his career, I remember um, he'd said that one of his strategies was to, because he does all of these crazy flashy things, he said that he likes to train low percentage techniques until they become high percentage techniques. And that's not totally insane, right? I mean, uh, if, if a technique has, allows you to maintain your alignment while breaking your yeah. opponents, it's totally valid, even if it looks somewhat crazy. Uh, that might not mean that it's for everybody, but there is some novelty and some importance in putting your own signature on your game and on the moves that you do. There's nothing wrong with having a uh, signature moves. So I, I certainly don't have any issue with people getting maybe a little bit enthusiastic at looking at cool stuff on the internet. And in fact, I'm always happy to be exposed to new ideas if there's some cool new or novel choke. But the important thing is You've got to make sure that you objectively assess all of this cool, flashy stuff and make sure that it's fundamentally sound. And the easiest way to do that is the the alignment scorecard game that we talked about, right? When you see one of these moves, you have to ask yourself, am I able to maintain my posture, structure, and base? And does this do anything to break my opponents? Yeah. If you have to sacrifice your alignment to do a move, yeah. it maybe it's is... Yeah, it, it's Yeah, it's maybe like, it's like rolling the dice at that point. Or alternately, if the move doesn't impact your opponent's alignment in any meaningful way, it also probably is not that effective, right? And there are a lot of moves like that. Like there's a lot of sweeps that look super duper cool, but when you think about it, like they kind of rely on your opponent breaking their own alignment. Like they only only work if your opponent is tilted to one side or something and they they would never realistically work against someone who has alignment um that that's something that you have to learn to judge on your own as you see these techniques so but by all means be receptive to new and interesting ideas and don't throw something out just because it's exotic Mm -hmm. but make sure that you think critically about whether the technique is sound at its core i think you said everything perfect there steve with the alignment uh that's that's my filter for when I see techniques and I want to incorporate them into my game as I run them through the alignment theories. I also ask myself, you know, is, uh, is this move a move that, uh, specifically works for a particular body type or, or, um, uh, a, a particular, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
you know, if someone's okay. overly flexible or yeah, uh, attributes. Like, like an attribute, yeah. So uh, if it's if it's something where it doesn't require a lot of flexibility or you to be really big, um, you know, and it's struck it, it, in terms of alignment, it makes sense. Then yeah, it works. I mean, I'll also assess the source I'm getting it from. You know, is this from a half a Mendez or a Cobrinha who has won at the highest level, and this this technique has been demonstrated at the highest level, or is this BJJ after forty? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the the stuff that that guy. Uh, I'm just gonna shit on him right now. The stuff he does is just you look at it and I, I say, okay, you're throwing out your own alignment there. You're falling over there. The guy is literally giving you this. Like he's not, that's that move works on someone who's, who doesn't have good alignment and is just lying. Really, I, I've never actually seen that guy's stuff. I, it, I've, it's popped up in my feed and I've added it to like my watch list, but I've never actually watched any of it. There's like, what I'm saying guys is there's a lot of bad stuff out there. So make sure that you're not just looking at something on, uh, on Instagram or YouTube and saying, Oh, this is like, you know, this is, this is the new move or whatever. I saw this. I'm going to start using this. Well, you know, use it if it, if it's fundamentally sound and it, and it passes the alignment concepts, but, um, you don't want to be incorporating moves that aren't necessarily sound. So I know it's when we're new in jujitsu, everything's really exciting and new and we take everything for, uh, we think everything is super valuable, but, you know, once you learn the alignment concepts, you kind of become a jujitsu snob because you can mm-hmm. you can decode situations and sort of see what works and what doesn't work. And you know, if if it works, incorporate it. If it doesn't work, don't use it. That's... It's like scientific skepticism in a lot of ways, right? You know, you've got to demonstrate to me that this has a sound foundation and that this actually is going to work. Yeah, can you replicate this and 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 uh, let's let's dissect it like the scientific approach that. Uh, that Rob has is basically as soon as we come up with a new technique or concept, we test it vigorously right away. Like, like, or uh, sorry, rigorously right away. We just sort of try and take it apart. And well, you can also test it vigorously. You, you could, te- you could test I'm it. I'm sure vigorously. you guys do. <laughs> Eventually, vigorously, we do test it. But uh, we try to break it, and that's that's the best way to sort of see what's we- where the weaknesses are. Right? If you just come up with a technique, you say that's it. This is the best technique. I'm going to use this right now. It's well, you know, maybe you could exhaust it a little bit more and sort of find out um, and find out where the weaknesses lie. You'll just mm-hmm. the worst case scenario is you won't incorporate a shitty technique into your game or you'll you'll really learn the ins and outs of a technique. So, you know, you know when to use it, you know what the defenses are going to be and you can transition from there. So, you know, everything comes back to alignment, like we keep saying, and just, you know, don't trust every source know your sources and uh, be skeptical out there when you're trying to incorporate new moves in your uh, toolbox. Yeah. And you also have to understand that a lot of techniques, um, even if technically sound, they may be situationally dependent. Uh, there might be techniques that just don't work for the type of game or situation that you find yourselves in. I mean, as an example, if you're not like it for myself, you know, I, I don't really compete. So I'm, I'm more interested in self-defense. And to me, I look at every technique through that lens. There, there may be some technique that I, I know is effective in competition, but maybe it isn't so effective if you're giving up a massive weight discrepancy, or maybe it relies on something like spider guard, which is maybe not super effective if, or, or wise if you're interested in self-defense so you, you have whoa, to whoa, whoa. well yeah yeah you know come um, on well look there, there's like you know you got to know matt we got to realize there's like needles and glass down there there's like you know you're going to get aids if you roll on the ground there's lava like you know um <laughs> yeah so but re- really though um you've got to know like what kind of situation you're going to be training in and what your goals are and that that's another lens to look at moves through right and, and that doesn't mean don't do them necessarily but you want to understand the situational context for every move because most moves don't work in every situation. There's usually a time and a place and you've got to be aware of that or you're going to be forcing moves. Like if, if you're trying to triangle someone who weighs 200 pounds more than you, <laughs> odds are you're not understanding the situational context, right? So you have to understand that everything has its limitations and understanding the limitations of a move is a good, uh, that, that's just as important as knowing the move itself. Cool. Matt, anything else you want to add? Nope. I hope you guys enjoyed it and keep the questions coming. We'll see you next time. Take care.